a reminder of what truly is the gospel. Um, but this evening, mainly with the purpose of looking at um, the removal of wrath from our message. Um, and I was thinking about it, uh, sort of a, a wrathless redemption. And it's not something that's pretty. It's not something that's easy to talk about. Uh, but it's all over the scriptures. I mean, we read it in Psalm 90 already. We sang it in a song already. Um, and so this, this is more just for us to remember. And again, as 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 um, Paul tells Timothy, uh, I believe it's in... Second Timothy, so we'll start there. Second Timothy one is just a few verses. To be reminded what has been entrusted to us. Second Timothy chapter one. And then there's a few verses in chapter two. So Second Timothy chapter one. Verse 8, verse 8, we'll read through, well, we'll just read through the end of the chapter and then a couple verses in, in, in chapter 2. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. So there, there's the first thing, right? Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, not any part of it, all of it is what we want to give testimony of. He says, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And power is, is a key emphasis in what we'll see this evening. Verse 9, who saved us. And called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And which now has been manifested or appeared or made known through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death. And brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, through the good news. For which, Paul says, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher. Which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed. For I know, who, I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day... What has been entrusted to me? Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Now, we could say, well, that's Paul, an apostle, talking to Timothy, a pastor. But if you get to chapter 2... And you look at verse 1, you see 
Paul to Timothy, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So there we see Paul saying it's not just me and you, Timothy, who need to guard this good deposit, who need to pass it on, but we need to pass it on to others that it may be passed on and guarded generation after generation. Um, I, just because it's really good what he says, we'll finish three, 3 through 7. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Now, now notice on this one, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuit since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Well, who's enlisted us and what has he enlisted us to? It's God to guard the good deposit, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't get caught up in what's going on in the world, but stay, keep your aim to please the one who's enlisted you. An athlete, verse 5, is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. He's hard work, or it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Okay, we've got to remember Paul's in prison. Verse 9 for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So don't forget that even we might be bound, but the word of God is not bound. But when we change it or weaken it, Water it down, we're basically putting it in chains. We're removing its power. And so, you know, you read First and Second Timothy, you get you catch this all throughout. Um, if you look to the left on First Timothy chapter six, verse twenty, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. And then he says, avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Okay, so the the, to, the topic I want us to think about today is 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 wrath. Is wrath. Um, we we have in our culture a wrathless redemption. Um, so the question I would ask you to think about, and you you know you you know the right answer, but think about. Think about the wrong answers that you've heard, um, or you've might even had to have removed from your train of thought. What is God saving us from? So we we're, we're all about salvation, being saved. What is God saving us from? So just think about it for a minute. All the answers that you could possibly give. I've got like four or five here written down. Um, and I'm so throw them out. And I'm not saying you're giving me a right or wrong answer. You, 
you, just what comes to mind. And if it's wrong, I'm not. No one's getting points here. If you give the wrong answer on purpose, that's okay. What have you? Give me wrong answers first. Sin, I think, you know, first and foremost. Sin. Okay. Okay. What else? Come on, Sylvia. Can I say what I want to say? Yeah. The wrath of God. Oh, I said wrong answers. I I, I said, can I say what I want to say? Oh. You can't play this wrong answer game. So here, here's a, a couple of things, and I'm sure these were going through your mind. What is God saving us from? What, what do we hear? What, what? And these are true. Let me, let me, let me make this clear. These have some sort of truth in them, um, but they fall short in uh, the totality of what God is saving us from. So a meaningless life, right? Uh, if we're, if, if we are outside of Christ. We are living life in vain, but that's not. Okay, I get it. You get it now. So. Hell. I feel like hell is like the number one. Hell. Right. I got that one. I'm so sorry. I'm the bad. I'm the worst student. <laughs> and you have no kids to distract you today. I know. I'm sorry. It's not feeling well. <laughs> <laughs> so sin, hell. Again, these are not. Things that these aren't wrong answers per se. Uh, sorrows, sadness, um, all these things are fruit of salvation. Um, what we're saved from. Uh, but let's let's just look at some verses to get the 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 down to down to bib, uh, biblical right answer. Let's start at John, the Gospel according to John. And let's start with the most well-known verse in the Bible. Well, I, I, I was listening. I was listening to uh, one of Garrett's sermons the other day, and he thinks the the most well-known verse nowadays is "Judge not, lest you be judged," which is probably right. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Okay, so John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever be- believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Okay. Now, that that says a lot. Um, but let's jump 20 verses and look at and think about that one in context of verse 36. Very similar statement, but a little bit more detailed. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God remains on him. So when we go when we think back to John 3:16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him the wrath of God no longer rests or remains on him but now they have eternal life. And so we 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 have to equate that word perish with 
the wrath of God. All right, those are those are the same the same focus, the same meaning. Um, now let's flip over to the beginning of Romans, verse chapter one. Excuse me. Verse 18. Well, let's see it in the context of the positive. Verse 16. Okay, let's start at 16, do 17, and then 18. So the positive in the 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power, there's that word, power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, now, let's say Paul went ahead and is like, I'm just going to get right down to the point, and he jumps over, and after he writes that, he writes Romans 6, 23. And just the good part of Romans 6, 23. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He can't, he can't do that. He's, he gives you the whole last half of Romans 1, all of Romans 2, and the first half of Romans 3 setting up the wrath of God. Verse 18 of Romans 1. So he's already said he, he's not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes the Jew first and also to the Greek. But before he can get to the good news, he's got to tell you the bad news. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, wrath of God. I've got a note in my, in my Bible, and I believe I heard this from um, R.C. Sproul. I've got a note that says... Wrath, pointing to wrath, and says, hot passion. That's that Greek word for wrath. It's orge. And I'm having this conversation because there is no kids here. That word is orge in Greek. And it's, you know, working out the word tree. It's the same word we get. We get the word orgy. That it's this heat and passion and so God's wrath isn't just this like he's stomping around mad, but it is his it is passionate hatred for evil. Right? It is hot. Red hot. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Um it, uh, I'll just quote. I'll just read it real quick, so you don't have to turn there. And I've read it before. Um, for you, a God that not you, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Psalm five. All right. So we see this. Um, position uh, I don't know what to call it 
trying to think of the right word here. Not position, but his God's. I can't think of the word I'm, I've got in my mind here. We see the wrath of God, his his passionate hatred for evil, um, and it's revealed against all ungodliness. Now, okay, so what's what's the outcome of that? We'll go look down to verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Now, in a sense, that is also the revealing of the wrath of God. The wrath of God is just not this final punishment. This giving them over is a part of that. All right, and it's it's seen throughout this whole section, but we've just read the last one. Um, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are filled with envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedience to parent, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree, the righteous decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die. If you eat of the true free, if you eat of the fruit of the tree, you shall surely die. For the wages of sin is death. They they not only do they do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I'll flip over to chapter two, verses four and five. Or do we or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So there we see very clearly uh salvation in its most basic sense is being saved from God. Uh, chapter 5 verse 9 Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Uh, Ephesians. There's a couple more verses here. Ephesians 2. Verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Chapter 5. Verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, 
For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Okay, so with all that, the tendency that we don't that we want to avoid the problem of the larger church today visible church is that we've weakened the true the true problem we've weakened it um because we desire for people to come to Christ we desire for people to make a decision for Jesus and so it's like Okay, example popped in my head. If you're walking down the street and it's October 31st, you're not going to go to the haunted house, the house that scares you. You're going to want to go to the house where you, you think you can safely get candy. Fear is not a factor for us day to day. You know, like, you want to come over to my house? I have a pit bull, and he is ferocious. Like, no thanks. I don't want to come to your house to meet your ferocious pit bull. And that's that's how I think that's probably a better analogy of how people within the church think that people outside the church see the wrath of God. It's like I don't want to come and hear about your angry God. Okay, well we won't talk about him. Right? Well how often do you hear that people are like, Well then that's not a God I wanna serve or I want to right. love or So, you know, the fear is if we begin with a big, bad, mean God who's angry at sin, and then we tell him, and you're a sinner, then we're afraid that they're not going to listen long enough to make a decision. Um, and we attempt to think and believe that the God of the New Testament is nicer. This is, the, you know, this is also our, our misunderstanding that the God of the New Testament is different than the God of the Old Testament. He's now nicer. He's more inclusive. He's now giving everyone an opportunity. Like he's 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 just less wrathful and not as angry. Um, but look at Hebrews 12, and we haven't got to this yet, but we will in a few weeks. Hebrews 12. So. We use, we use how we think we see Jesus in the New Testament to make us feel better that we don't have to talk about God's anger, wrath, and judgment towards sin. But the problem is, is that God is still God. Uh, verse 18. And the first few verses here almost make you start to think that that's true. But then just hold on to your britches. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. 
You see that? That's the Old Testament reality, right? That's the Old Testament reality. And we're like, we don't want any of that. That can't be that can't be who God is in the New Testament. Because in verse 22, you, you get this, you're going in this direction. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gatherings and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteousness made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And you think, yes, I don't want to go to that old mountain and I don't want to tell people about that old mountain. But the problem is, is that this new mountain only comes when you realize the reality of Mount Sinai. The law, right? You can't get past it. You can't avoid it. And the problem then also is if you neglect it and then draw people into this better place, this Jesus that's not angry, and you leave out the law, you leave out Mount Sinai then you 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 remove the power of the gospel see that is a promise to true believers that we don't have to tremble in fear like they did at the bottom of the mountain because we have been brought to mount zion in christ right we are there we are in him we are, we are in this uh, festal gathering of innumerable angels. But those who are outside of Christ still stand at the foot of Mount Zion. That's where they are. But So you see, then it kind of it changes in verse 25. We're like, okay, so God's different. That's kind of the feel we get in these first few verses. 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Oh, he's still who he was. He's still the same God. Uh, 13 verse 8, what does it say? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. We, 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 when we weaken the real problem, we give a wrathless redemption, we weaken our Savior, and we cheapen his gospel. Um, okay, wrathless redemption produces images of blonde-haired, blue-eyed, meek and mild Jesus. That is the fruit of a wrathless redemption. That's the image we, we portray when we make salvation um, easy and comfortable. 
we want to evangelize this Jesus, this blue-eyed, blonde-haired Jesus, um, and hide the Jesus who treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. That's the definition of Jesus. Let's let's look at it. Revelation 19. Huh? Right. And you, part of the New Testament, exactly. Verse eleven through sixteen. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of the heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of god the almighty on his robe on his thigh he has a name written king of kings and lord of lords that's jesus now don't get me wrong we must hold in balance um, we must hold in balance, present in evangelism, worship in our gatherings and at home, Jesus um, of the Bible, right? And so we've got Jesus in Revelation 19, but we also have Jesus in the Beatitudes, right? The, so we have to balance and be balanced in the sense because when we're unbalanced, we're just opposite of the the progressive or the liberal Christian. Because they they fall towards um, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, right? The the, the easy speak easy. I'm not gonna really push you, especially in the you know I'm not gonna push you too hard on your sin. But that's also because they don't understand the Sermon on the Mount. Um, but they got this sense of, okay, we're going to all act in good, nice, love, peace, harmony. As long as we love one another, we're good. And then we don't want to be, though, the people who are standing and we're just talking about him, you know, the blood coming out of the wine press and the fury and this and that. We cannot we can't live on one side in opposition of, of the, the falseness on the other, of just living on the other side. We have to live, balance, present, and worship the Jesus of the Bible. First uh, Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians give a good comparison um, of of Jesus. So the first chapter in First Thessalonians and the first chapter in the Second Thessalonians, we've got the Jesus who saves us from wrath, and then the Jesus who comes in flaming fire of vengeance. Right. First uh, Thessalonians chapter one, verse nine and ten.
For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. So there's Jesus, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus saves us from the wrath of God. But we also see in Second Thessalonians chapter 1 that in his coming... To save us from the wrath of God when he is to be glorified in his saints on that day. Verse 5, kind of start in 5 to kind of get the running start. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considering it just to repay with with affliction those who afflict you. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. All of that... Horror nightmare. And then verse 10, when he comes on the day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. That's Jesus. Both sides. Savior and judge. Jesus uh, of the Beatitudes. Jesus of the great white throne judgment. Um, So just, I want to, We'll just finish quickly with the cross, okay, because that's where you ultimately have to take this. You have a conversation about wrath. You have to go to the cross. Um, Luke 22. Luke 22. What truly happened on the cross? Luke 22, verse 39. So we're hours from the cross. Uh, They're in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he, Jesus, came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. So here's the question I have for us. Do we really think that Jesus was afraid of dying? No way. No way. Uh, Hebrews 2 says he came to destroy the one who has the power of death. He's not, he's not scared of dying. So what's he in agony about? Well, verse, it's verse 40, 42. The cup, right. What's in the cup? He was staring down the barrel of the wrath of God. 
And why would that be so agonizing? Not only just the wrath of God, but the wrath of God from the Father to the Son. We're talking eternity past perfect love, harmony between the Father and the Son, and now he's staring down the wrath of God the Father. Uh, Isaiah 53. Verse... Uh, start in nine. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Ten. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. That's it. That was the cup. That is what he drank. The Father crushed the Son. And that's what we sang about in, in Christ alone earlier. Uh, he has put him to grief. Uh, Romans 3.25. There's a word that I, I'm sure you know, and I just want to make sure that we understand it. All of that language can be found in one little word in Romans 3. Also, it's found in 1 John, I believe, chapter 4. Verse 25. Uh, we'll start at 24. 24. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation. There's that word, propitiation. The appeasement of wrath is what that word means. The satisfaction of God's wrath was in him crushing his son. God put him forward. That's the good news. <laughs> That's the gospel. You remove that and the cross is powerless. Uh, Let me read. Read this from a little excerpt from Paul Washer on this. He says, Abraham takes Isaac up to the mountain, his son, his only son whom he loved. Do you suppose the Holy Spirit was trying to tell us something about the future? The son put up no struggle 
but laid himself down. And when the father surrendered his will to the will of God, he brought down that flint knife to pierce his own son's heart. But but his hand was stayed. And the old man was told that God had provided a ram. So many Christians think then, oh, what a beautiful end to the story. It's not the end, though. It's the intermission. Thousands of years later, God the Father laid his hand on the brow of his son, his only son whom he loved, and he took the flint knife out of the hand of Abraham and slaughtered his only begotten son under the full force of his wrath. He then says, now do you know why that little gospel you preach has no power? Because it's no gospel. Get to the gospel. Spend your life on your knees. Get away from the false teaching and the unscriptural men. Study the cross. So that's that's where I wanted us to go tonight, is that we're reminded that that is our... We want to aim to know and guard and study and love and cherish this cruel, cruel cross, right? The world stumbles over it. Uh, There's a – I don't remember. I can't give you any details about it. I just remember there's an early painting, and if someone's gotten more details about it, you can help me out. There's an early painting – Early, like first, second, I don't know, first, second, or third century. I'm not really sure. And it was an ass on a cross, and it was it was it was representative of what the world thought about Jesus of Nazareth. That was at the same time. Of, that was like right after Jesus died. Like was it the first century? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And that, that's what that. that's what the world thinks about a cross. That if someone is to die on a cross, he's nothing but a criminal, right? Um, uh, what, what's Paul say in uh, – he says the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Uh For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. That's the way the world views the cross. And we we can't soften it for the sake of hoping to make more people come. The power is in the cross. The power is in the truth. So that, that, that's just the drive that I want us to take to take home tonight. And that we, we are asking the Lord constantly to keep us guarding the good deposit entrusted to us. Passing it on to faithful men, to our, our kids, that it might continue and that we can contend for the faith. All right. Anything else? Any comments? Any thoughts? So next time we come together, I want us to talk a little bit about um, how 
how we evangelize in this context and how we call people to the gospel and to Christ in this context. So, uh, yeah. The crucifixion itself is, uh, is the most cruel mm-hmm. way that the Romans found mm-hmm. to, to kill somebody. And then if you add to that all the things that Christ suffered before, mm-hmm. they crucified him. It was a, a very brutal and very bloody. Mm-hmm. Sometimes uh, 